Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. It's good to hear you sing. Does my soul good? I think it does our souls good to hear that as a body of believers. A couple of kind of introductory remarks. If you missed last week, you can go to our podcast channel. If you have a podcast app on your smartphone, you can subscribe to our church podcast and listen if you miss it. That would also be an encouraging way for you to share this with somebody else. If uh, they're interested or may you think they may be interested, tell them to listen. Uh, look for the theology series on our podcast channel. That's a good way to, to kind of follow up and catch up. We put those up on Mondays. So if you miss a week, it'll be Monday when it gets uploaded. Uh, that's just kind of for your encouragement. So tonight, what we're going to do is continue to move forward in the, our study of the doctrine of revelation. Uh, I got to thinking, how am I going to begin tonight? How am I going to transition into what we're, what we're looking to do? And I, I thought I'd do this. Why do we do this? Why am I here teaching us doctrine? Uh, there are a lot of different reasons, but here are a couple. Uh, I mentioned this in an article I wrote this week for you as a church family. There's hardly a week that goes by in my life as your pastor that I don't hear from somebody in our congregation who knows somebody who has drifted away from faith. Uh, Some have left faith because they moved to college and at college they heard uh, the Christian faith that that you have is, is kind of worthless or it doesn't make sense or it doesn't fit. And so they've left because of an intellectual doubt. Some have left faith because they just chose to live a different way. Morally, they failed. Or some have left because they just drifted away gradually. That's heartbreaking. As heartbreaking as it is for me as your pastor to hear those stories, I know for you as a mom and as a dad and as a grandparent, as you're thinking about your children... Some adult children, some adult grandchildren who are no longer living out the faith that you shared with them and you told them about, you're concerned for them. And rightly so. We're concerned for their souls. We're concerned for where they are spiritually. We're concerned for where those little ones are that are meeting in Awana right now hearing Scripture. And what I want to let you know is this. Our Christian faith is something that we have to believe. Faith is a tremendously important part of our Christianity, but it is not a blind faith. You and I don't have to close our eyes and take a huge jump hoping to land on something. Really what I want us to do over these weeks as we work through Christian doctrine is simply let you know this. That what we believe as Christians and what we have grounded in the pages of Scripture is really well thought out, not only because it comes from God, but well defended. And and basically what I want to make a case for is that the pages of Scripture that we open up and we say this is God's Word, there are some really good reasons for us to believe that the Bible is God's Word and that it's authoritative and that it is something that we need to apply in our own lives. Millard Erickson, in the book that I referenced last week, Introducing Christian Doctrine, if you like a copy of this book to kind of follow along or read along, I would encourage you to do that. He wrote this. He said, because evangelicalism, that's us, is clear that its source is the Bible. It does not suffer from fluctuations of opinion regarding relative, the relative place of experience or tradition, 
nor does it debate whether religion's primary focus is feelings or ethical activity. Bottom line is, what that means is that for us as Christians, we believe that the Bible's our authority. And most of you are here acknowledging that. You're not arguing with me about that. You're here accepting that. So how do we know that it's our authority? Because the flat reality is... Most people outside of biblical Christianity would not say that the Bible is authoritative, authoritative universally, and, and that it matters for everyone. So how do, we, how do we make sense of that? So what we're going to do is ask this question, can we trust the Bible? So 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 says this, and in a couple of weeks or next week, we're going to begin unpacking this verse. I wanted to set us up though tonight. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. So let's start with an assumption, okay? Maybe you're here and you're a skeptic, that's okay. Maybe you're not convinced, that's okay too. But let's start with this assumption that the Bible is God-breathed, it's inspired, it's authoritative. We believe that. As followers of Jesus here in this church, that's kind of our framework. Maybe you're not convinced. Maybe you're listening on a podcast channel and you're not convinced. What I'm going to try to do over the next several weeks is convince you that that is a valid argument and that it does make sense. The reality, though, is that as we, as we make this argument, the belief that, the, that Scripture is inspired by God, there are many who don't hold that very framework. They think something quite differently. In other words, Rob Bell, who is a progressive pastor, and many others in that same vein, would make an argument that what we read in Scripture should be thought about differently. In other words, they're good stories, they're things that might be nice, but, but we're not sure that we can hold everything authoritatively. He wrote this, he said, uh, about Christians who believe the Bible, they were taught by their pastor or their parents or authority figures to submit to the authority of the Bible. He's right, that's exactly what I'm doing, and that's exactly what many of you experienced. He said, but that's impossible to do without submitting first to whoever is deciding what the Bible is saying. The problem, of course, is the the folks who talk the most about the authority of the Bible also seem to talk the most about things like objective and absolute truth, truth that exists independent of relational realities. What Rob Bell's making a case for within progressive Christianity is that we need to see the Bible a little differently. In other words, it's okay if we look at the scripture and we don't quite say that it's authoritative and we don't quite say that God wrote it and that we listen to other voices and other sources that might say the Bible's not something that should ground our belief. He's not alone. People like... um, uh, 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 his name left me misquoting truth. Bart Ehrman. I'm going to reference him in a moment. He's a professor of theology and biblical studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Grew up in a Christian home. He does not believe that the Bible is God's authoritative word. If you go to a, an institution of higher education, you're going to hear from many professors the Bible is not God's authoritative word. In Progressive Christianity, uh, another gospel by Lisa Childers, which is a book I would highly recommend. She deals with this. Progressive Christianity makes the case that the Bible is not God's authoritative word. Now, what I'm going to tell you is that it is. But what I want you to hear from me over the next few weeks, don't take the Bible as God's authoritative word simply because I tell you to. What I'm going to 
try to make a case for tonight and in the weeks ahead is how we can know that it is God's word. That we can believe in absolute universal truth that is claimed from God to us and how it impacts our life. And we're going to start with how do we know what God's word is? We know it based on the canon of scripture. So N.T. Wright put it this way, the scripture is the authority of God exercised through scripture. So it's God speaking through the pages of scripture. And so what is the Bible? The Bible is a collection of 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament books, uh, written over a period of 1,500 years from Moses all the way to John, from the first five books of the Bible all the way to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, written in about 90 AD, so 1,500 years of time. And it is by 40 different authors. And so here's, here's one question. So if we say that God wrote the Bible, which I'm going to make that claim in weeks to come, that God says he's the author of Scripture, show you from Scripture how that lays itself out. God claims to be the author of Scripture, but yet you have 40 different human authors. So a natural question about the consistency of Scripture is, how can we be sure that the 40 books, 40 authors that wrote the Bible, the 66 books over that period of time, are saying what we believe they should be saying? Anybody in here watch the movie The Da Vinci Code? Some of you did. In that book, in that movie, there's this argument that the Bible didn't get written or not written, but put together until AD 325, the Council of Nicaea. And essentially, the question is, well, if the canon of Scripture didn't come about till hundreds of years after Jesus' life and ministry, how can we trust that the 66 books that we have are from God? Well, here's what I want to do. I want to walk through what is the canon of Scripture. 39 Old Testament books, the 27 New Testament books, and give you a framework that I think makes sense and also helps us know what the canon of Scripture is. Canon means a straight rod, and there should be two blanks there, so one blank there, or a rule of faith. Essentially, the idea is a canon is a list of books that gives us a framework for knowing what God wants us to know. The Old Testament canon would be the 39 books of the Old Testament that were put together and that essentially said this is what God wanted the people of Israel to know about himself. This is how God wants us to, or wanted his people in the Old Testament to abide. When we say rule of faith, it means that those books govern what God wants us to do. That, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but the sufficiency of scripture makes the case that what God wants us to do, he shared with us in scripture. There's more that we can know, but God gives us enough to guide us in how to live our, our lives as, a, as, a, as followers of Jesus. The New Testament canon is 27 books. And, and what I want to share with you is how we can be assured that the canon is something that God providentially protected. Now, I'm going to say something that I'm not going to really argue for tonight that we'll make a case for in the weeks to come. I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. It means I believe in the origin, that the original autographs, what God gave to Moses or Paul or Peter or whoever the writer was, is inerrant. I believe that because I believe that God can't lie according to Hebrews chapter 6. And if God can't lie and he gave us scripture, then scripture in the original autographs is without error. Okay, I'm going to make a case for that in weeks to come. But if that's the case, if we believe that, then how can we be sure that the books that we got are the books that God intended for us to get? 
How can we be sure of that? That's what the process of canonization is all about. How did we get the 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books of the New Testament? We're going to spend most of our time on the New Testament tonight, but let me shorten up the, the Old Testament comment. The books in the Old Testament were essentially established prior to Jesus entering into the world. So about two or 300 years before Jesus entered, the Jewish people essentially had the law, the prophets, and the histories, or Psalms. And they had that corpus, those 39 books that were well-established, identified, and held true in the Old Testament. So the Bible that Jesus had, and Paul had, and Peter had, would primarily have been the Old Testament text, and that really wasn't debated or argued. In fact, most of the folks that would argue against the, using the canonicity of Scripture or the lack thereof to make a case that we shouldn't believe in the authority of Scripture, they're really talking about the New Testament because they could care less about the Old Testament. The New Testament affirms the deity of Jesus, the resurrection, and salvation. You take away the New Testament, don't have to worry about the Old Testament so much. So we're going to spend some time looking at the New Testament. How do we know that the 27 books of the New Testament are the books that we should have? Haven't you heard about the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Mary Magdalene? And if you pay any attention in the news, about every two or three years, you hear about another portion of another Gospel that's come out and said, why don't we accept those? Why don't we accept the Apocrypha? Why don't we accept these as authoritative? I'm going to tell you why. Because the early church accepted only a handful of books as authoritative. In fact, what's wild is this. We believe that the New Testament, as we have it, the 27 books of the New Testament, were written prior to AD 90. So Jesus lived from about, depending on your dating system, BC 4 till about AD 33 or 37, somewhere in that neighborhood. So his ministry was the first 30 years of our calendar. I believe that the New Testament, all 27 books that we have, were written between that time period, probably about AD 40 and AD 90. So that's about a 50-year period of time. And that's a pretty good dating system, even for those who are not necessarily conservative. Some non-conservative scholars would put some of the, the books of the Bible later than that. But that's problematic because of what I'm going to tell you right now with what the church did. Early in church history, by AD 125, so less than 100 years after the events of the New Testament, a church leader by the name of Papias believed that Matthew, Mark, 1 Peter, 1 John, Revelation, and some of Paul's letters met, were a part of the New Testament. So within 100 years. Just a few years after that, Justin Martyr, who is a tremendous theologian and apologist of the early church history, he held that all four Gospels were a part of church practice and were read regularly in worship services along with the Old Testament. Irenaeus, another church father by AD 180, had a nearly full canon to the 27 books that we have. The Gospels, Acts, the Pauline letters, minus Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 1 and 2 John, and Revelation. And then the earliest list that we have where an author put together a specific canon list came about in the same period, about AD 180, 150 years after the events of the New Testament, which had all four Gospels, Acts, the 13 epistles of Paul, First and Second John, Jude, and Revelation. What I'm, what I'm trying to tell you is the 27 books of the New Testament have been around as a part of the New Testament for a long time, about 1900 years well before the Council of Nicaea when they were confirmed, but well before then. So how did we get those books? 
and give you the three criteria for New Testament canon. The first one is apostolic authority, meaning that the New Testament books had to be written by someone who was an apostle or carried with them apostolic authority. These criteria also related to the dates. In other words, there were some books that came out that claimed to be written by some apostle. But they came out after the fact. And the reason that's important, if you've got 125 and 150 AD where Mars, or, or where, uh, where um, excuse me, Papias and Justin Martyr and Irenaeus are already saying these books are well-traveled in the church. If you've got them saying that within 100 years, it's not really hard for them to say, okay, hold on a second, there's this other writing that came out 20 years ago claiming to be written by Thomas, but... The church didn't have it prior to that. None of the churches had it prior to that. So apostolic authority, meaning that it had to be written by someone who knew Jesus and walked with Jesus. Another uh, of the criterion was this, orthodoxy. For a book to make it in the New Testament canon, it essentially had to have orthodox positions about Jesus about God, and some of the th- second and third century writings were Gnostic in their nature, and they had stories that were absolutely outlandish, like Jesus as a little boy, you know, uh, rescuing a bird and healing, making a bird out of clay and things like that. Could he have done that? Absolutely, he could have done that. But, but none of the New Testament, what we read, tells stories to try to sensationalize the gospel. They tell stories just matter-of-factly to let us know this is who Jesus is. So orthodoxy, the reason we have the 27 books that we do is because if you compare them theologically, they don't say different things about Jesus. They don't say different things about God. They don't say different things about salvation. They don't say different things about how we can know God. So Orthodoxy, apostolic authority, and then Catholicity is the third category. That basically means they were accepted by the church at large. So if there's one church over here in the corner that thought this book should be adopted into the New Testament canon, that didn't make it in. The church at large had to accept that. And the reason that's tremendously important is because when the Council of Nicaea happened, AD 325, a little bit of church history for a second, the reason things didn't get confirmed uh, until the Council of Nicaea, like the deity of Jesus in terms of the the way that that was determined when you had the the, uh, heresy by Athanasius, who, who was ba- or by Arius, who's basically arguing that Jesus was not God in human flesh. The reason that get, didn't get debated until 325 by the church is because until 325, the church was persecuted. You know that? The Roman Empire tried to root out the church, and really up until about 300, Diocletian was the last Roman emperor. He instituted a terrible persecution against the church. So for the first 250 years, 270 years of church history, the church in many places was running for its life. They had underground worship services. They didn't have freedom it wasn't until Emperor Constantine with the Council of Nicaea gave freedom to the church with issuing the Edict of Milan that the church could freely discuss and debate theological issues. And the issue of the deity of Jesus was such that Emperor Constantine called the Council of Nicaea, the bishops gathered together to deal with the issue of this heresy, Arius' heresy about the deity of Jesus. The church had always believed in the deity of Jesus. The only way the church ever works is to believe that Jesus is God who died on the cross for our sins. They affirmed that at Nicaea along with the 27 books of our New Testament canon. 
Essentially what that means is that the books that we have have always been affirmed by the church to be the books of the Bible. The church has always believed, this isn't new for us, church has always believed that the 66 books of the Bible we have have come from God and, and tell us how we ought to live our lives. F.F. Proust put it this way. In the canon of scripture, we have the foundation documents of Christianity, the charter of the church, the title deeds of faith. For no other literature can such a claim be made. And when the claim is made, it is made not merely for a collection of ancient writings. In the words of Scripture, the voice of the Spirit of God continues to be heard. Repeatedly, new spiritual movements have been launched by the rediscovery of the living power which resides in the canon of Scripture, a living power which strengthens and liberates. We're an example of that. If you've been changed by the pages of Scripture because a preacher preached them or you read them or a Sunday school teacher taught them to you, it's an evidence that the Bible is God's authoritative word working in and through not only you and me, but people of all places and all over the world. That's the canon of scripture. But, but let's ask a further question that might come up from critics. If we can trust that what we have, the 66 books of the Bible, have always been held by the people of God in the Old Testament, the Israelites, the New Testament, the church, if we can trust that this is what the people of God have thought were, were the words of God, and if we believe that it's inerrant, can we trust that what we have, these writings that we have today, reading in English, I'm reading out of the ESV, can we trust that this is actually God's words received by us? In other words, can we trust that the transmission of those scriptures is accurate and valid? One of the greatest arguments against the New Testament is the fact that there appear to be a number of variations within the manuscript text. In fact, one of Bart Ehrman's most famous arguments against New Testament Christianity is that the manuscripts vary so much that we can't trust that what we have in the books of the Bible is actually what the original authors had. In other words, if, if we can make a case that what Matthew wrote isn't what we're reading, then maybe we have to distrust the Bible. So let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about the manuscripts. Let me give you a few basic facts about the manuscripts that we have. This is a New Testament argument, not an Old Testament argument. The Old Testament argument actually blows this out of the water with the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were about a thousand years, uh, a thousand years earlier than any other dated Old Testament manuscripts that we had, the beauty of that is almost every book save Esther is represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in the 1950s and beyond 50s, 60s, and 70s. And the Dead Sea Scrolls confirm that the Old Testament that was transmitted down through different manuscripts is the same Old Testament. In other words, they were very careful in their scribal transmission. It's the same Old Testament. So what about the New Testament? Well, get this. There are 5,756 New Testament manuscripts. That's a lot of New Testament manuscripts in the original language, Greek manuscripts, 5,756 total manuscripts, all right? Now, here's something wild. When you compare the number of New Testament manuscripts with other writings of the same era, the New Testament manuscripts dwarf any other uh, type of literature. Let me give you an example. Herodotus and Thucydides are Greek historians, we have 109 manuscripts for Herodotus. We have 95 for Thucydides. 
Plato, how many of you have heard of Plato? Famous philosopher. Do you realize that hardly anybody, anybody doubts that what we have from Plato is what Plato intended for us to have? There's not text criticism done on Plato's works. A lot of debates. Plato's philosophy is worthy of debate. I think he's wrong in a whole lot of things. But you don't go into a classroom, philosophical classroom, and hear a philosopher argue that what we have from Plato isn't what Plato intended for us to have. But New Testament skeptics do that all the time. You know how many uh, manuscripts we have of Plato? 219. We have 150 from Livy, which is a Roman historian. We have 31 from Tacitus, 300 from Suetonius, and Homer's Iliad, which is a crazy story. We have 2,300. So the New Testament manuscripts more than double uh, the manuscripts that we have of Homer's Iliad and just blow out of the water any other manuscript that we have. What does that mean? It means that as we take those manuscripts and compare them to one another, you can discern as to whether or not those manuscripts are saying the same thing. Now, here's what's also wild about that. The New New Testament manuscripts are significantly earlier than any other ancient literature. Within 35 years, in at least one case, and all of the New Testament is within about all the New Testament manuscripts that we have, all of them are within 200 years of the events. All of them, which is way closer in timeline than any other history or any other of these manuscripts. Now, Bart Amron's claim is this. He claims that there are 400,000 variations between those manuscripts. And because there are 400,000 variations, that sounds like a big number. So 5,000 manuscripts, 400,000 variations. His argument that he poses at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill in his books and writings, 400,000 variants means that we can't trust the New Testament. That many variations, there's no way that we can trust that what we have is accurately transcribed as the Word of God. 400,000 variations. Let me define a variation. A variant is any place among the existing New Testament manuscripts where there is not uniformity of wording. Let me make this really clear, okay? There are four different kinds of variations. Only four. One is the first type of variation is a spelling variation. How many of you are great spellers? My son. So, how many of you have spelled something differently over the years in your life? You know, get this, 70 to 80% of those 400,000 variations are spelling variations. So, if, if I spell your name differently, like Lee, if I spell your name L-E-E, or if I spell your name L-E-I-G-H, or if I spell your name L-I-E, that's... 70 to 80% of the variations are simply difference in spelling, which is not a significant difference. It doesn't change the meaning. Uh, and this is pre-computer, right? This is pre, I mean, one of the best things that ever happened for our spelling is spell check on a computer, amen? Okay, that's the first type of variation. A second type of variation is a minor difference. Uh, what do I mean by a minor difference? Word order. Word order. In the English language, word order really matters. In the Greek language and in Latin languages, other languages, word order is about emphasis. So sometimes the verb comes first or sometimes the subject comes first. And that, that's all about emphasis in the text. Some of the variations 
are simply word order. They don't change the meaning at all. All they are is a difference in order. Or they add a definite article to a proper name or don't have a definite article to a proper name. That's the second type of variation. The third type of variation is a meaningful but not a viable difference. For example, the gospel of God versus the gospel of Christ. Well, we believe Christ is God, so it doesn't really matter whether it's the gospel of God or the gospel of Christ, it's still the gospel. The fourth type of variation, less than 1%, by the way, of all the 400,000 variations in the 5,000 manuscripts that we have are meaningful variations and viable variations. But let me give you an example of what that is. An example of one of those variations is this. Let us have peace with God. That's one of those manuscript variations versus we have peace with God. Let us have peace with God. We have peace with God. Say this about the variations. There is no variation within any of the 400,000 variations in the New Testament manuscripts that changes anything about our doctrine or changes anything that we would believe about the necessity of salvation, the deity of Jesus, or any major doctrine of the Bible. None. So 5,000, how many did I say? 756 New Testament manuscripts say the same thing about all the major things that we would believe. So let me say it this way. What we have here in the 66 books of our New Testament, of our our Bible, our English Bible, is what the Old Testament believers had and what the early New Testament church had. It's not any different. Not any different at all. How about this? With all this put together, a safe estimate is that 99% of the original words of the New Testament and 95% of the original words of the Old Testament are recoverable. In short, that means we can be confident that we have the Word of God. Now, I'm going to make a case for why I believe it's the Word of God, why I believe it's authoritative, why I believe it's inerrant, why I believe it's inspired. We're going to come back to that next week. But here's what I would like to say to you tonight. What we have here is what the early church had. It's not different. What we have here is what the Old Testament believers had. It's not different. So you may walk away or you may have others who walk away who say, I don't want to believe this. I don't want to agree with it. I don't want to follow God. And that's their choice. God gives us free will. But we can't walk away saying that this, as it's been transmitted, is untrustworthy because that's just not the case. The the evidence bears out that what we have is exactly what the early church had. For example, you go all the way back to Ephesus. We're talking about Paul and 1 Timothy. Timothy preached at Ephesus. He probably had some of the scriptures, New Testament scriptures at Ephesus. What he had is what we have today. It's not different. It is God's word. Let me give you three takeaways and we'll finish up for tonight. Takeaway number one, if we can trust the Bible, that is canon, manuscripts, and inspiration, if we can trust it, then the Bible is our authority for life and practice. If you and I believe that this is trustworthy and believe it comes from God, then it's got to dictate what we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about how we live and how we have practice make a a tremendous case for that over the next few weeks. The issue, the issue of the Bible in contemporary, in our contemporary society is the issue of authority. Who gets the right to decide or to say what we should do? 
Our society says it's us individually. We get the right to say what we do. That's why we have all the challenges with transgenderism. That's why we have all the challenges with personhood. That's why we have all the challenges with abortion. And all of those things that for a lot of us, we listen to those arguments. We say, that just doesn't make sense. How is that normal? How does that even fit with biology? How does that fit with human experience? Well, the reason is because our society today says authority resides within you. And within me, I get to decide all of those things. But if God spoke the Bible into existence, spoke it through people, if he created the world, if he's the one who decides how things operate in the world, if he structured all that, then folks, I don't get to decide all of those things that I'd like to think I get to decide. God does. And how do we know what that is? Well, we don't know it because God has come down into our church this week and spoken to us visibly and personally. Jesus is in heaven. We know it because God has spoken to us through the 66 books of the Bible. This is what he says uh, matters, and this is authoritative. Let me give you a second takeaway. I believe without doubt that we can be confident that what we have as the Bible is what was originally understood to be scriptures. This is powerful, what I've been trying to argue for for the last 20 minutes or so. If this is what the early church had, we, you, you may walk away saying, I don't believe that. Okay. But don't walk away thinking that this isn't what they had. This is the very thing that they taught and preached. This is the very thing that they believed. It's the very same truths that have changed people's lives for 2,000 years all across the world. We can be confident that what we have, the 66 books of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, are what God intended for his people to have. Here's number three, and this is the most important for us as followers of Jesus. We don't get to adjust the Bible. We must adjust to the Bible. I shared something similar. It's not my line But the other week when we were preaching, when I was preaching through 1 Timothy 2 and read that text that's a little bit challenging and controversial, uh, I was was listening to an audio book, which I would recommend, by the way, I'll I'll point it out to you in a minute. So listen to an audio book. Basically, one, one writer put it this way. He said, it is okay for us to wrestle with the scriptures. That's interpretation. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. It is not okay for us to wrestle against the scriptures. What does that mean as followers of Jesus? It means this. If this is God's word, which I believe it is, if it's God's word, if he spoke to us, if it's authoritative, then I have to approach this as if this is God's expectation for me and for you. So if that's the case, I have to read it and I don't get to make the case to God, God, you're wrong Paul was wrong or Peter was wrong or whoever, I have to make the case that I've got to change to make my life fit this. Because the Bible, the canon, is a rule of faith, it essentially means that that for us as followers of Jesus, we have to adjust perceptions, uh, preconceptions, what we think ought to be, we adjust to this, not the other way around. If the scripture is guiding our behavior if it's guiding our beliefs, if it's guiding our church practice, we're, underneath, we're in a place where I think God blesses that. When we intentionally, or unintentionally for that matter, say that I'm not going to do what God says and we pull back from scripture, that's when we move outside of God's blessings. 
So essentially what that means for us as Christians is when you read the Bible and you read something you don't like, and I do that a lot. I read things I don't like, okay? I, uh, uh, that, that section of scripture in 1 Timothy 2, we're together without being angry. There's times I like being angry. It makes me feel good to be angry. Does it make some of y'all feel good to be angry? You know what God says about being angry? Don't do it. Don't be angry in the body of Christ. You know what? who has to change? I do. God says don't be quarrelsome. He says be gentle. I mean, we go on and on. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. How many of us pursue peace? How about this one? Patience. Some of us are tremendously impatient. But what does God's word say? It said the fruit of the Spirit that he's trying to create, develop in our lives is patience. What do I have to do? I have to adjust to that, not the other way around. And it's true for hard text too. It's true for passages of scripture that deal with things that, how do we make sense of this? We wrestle with, meaning how do we put this in practice? How do we believe it? How do we accept it? But not against, I'm not gonna believe it. I'm gonna turn away from it. So as we move forward, we're gonna look at issues like inspiration. What is the doctrine of inspiration? God breathed out scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16. Authority, infallibility, the Bible's without error. It can't be errant. Inerrancy. We'll talk about all of those things in the weeks to come and try to make a case that what we have here is God's word. If it is, we respond to it. And if we respond to it, then we're approaching scripture rightly so. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.